Listener supported. WNYC Studios. I think she rejected surgery because she was afraid. Like she was, she was more terrified than she'd ever been. And these miracle cures gave her hope. Like they were an escape hatch from facing her fears head on. This is Death, Sex, and Money. The show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. I'm Anna Sale. Rachel Matlow is a 42-year-old non-binary writer and audio producer who lives in Toronto. In 2015, their mom Elaine died from cancer. Cancer that Rachel's mom decided not to treat with conventional medicine. Rachel wrote a book about loving and arguing with their mom through those end-of-life choices. And it's a wonderfully honest, painful, and somehow also quite funny book called Dead Mom Walking, a memoir of miracle cures and other disasters. How long does it feel like your mom's been gone? I mean, ah, that's... I think it does feel like it's been seven years, but sometimes it feels like I wouldn't be surprised if she just walked in the door. I I don't think about her... Every day, I think about her a lot, but I don't know if I think about her every single day like I used to. Mm-hmm. So in that way, she she feels a bit distant. But, you know, I have her picture up on my fridge. I still talk to her in my head. I, I still make fun of her. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> when, when you're talking to her in your head, as you said, like, what's that like? Is it out loud? Yeah. Is it- uh, it's more like, oh, mom would get a kick out of this. Uh, like, even right now, the fact that I'm talking about her to you, she would probably find hilarious. <laughs> She'd be like, make me look good. Just make me look good. <laughs> That's interesting. Do you speak back to her? Yeah, I say, why did you do what you did? You know, there's times where I'm like, I just, you should be here. You should be here for this. And you're not. And I'm like annoyed at you right now because of that. When Elaine was growing up, she felt like her own mom had held her too close in a way that felt stifling. So when Elaine became a mother, she wanted to do things differently with Rachel and their older brother. She had a very hands-off approach. She gave me lots of freedom to do whatever I wanted, to eat whatever I wanted. And I remember when I started senior kindergarten, and she said, oh, you're in senior kindergarten, it's full-time, you have to make your own lunch for school. (laughs) And I remember just being like, oh, like, what do I take? And I think she said, your cousin Sarah takes a yogurt. And so I was very famous at school from the time I was young because one of my favorite concoctions was I would bring a cappuccino yogurt and then a box of Smarties (laughs) and pour the Smarties into the cappuccino yogurt and swirl it until all the dye came off. And then I'd usually like round it off with like a Coke and maybe a baby bell for like a bit of protein or something. (laughs) Um, So yeah, she, she just never told me what to do. And like, Looking back, I didn't think parents did tell kids what to do. Like, I got to make all my own decisions. 
Um, I decided in grade two that I didn't like my school and I wanted to go to this other alternative school where I could play chess all day. And it just, I told my mom, I found a new school and I'm going there. So it was kind of great. But that being said, it probably wasn't so good for me to be eating, you know, uh, mini pita stuff with Nutella for my lunches every day. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds like you certainly made the most of your autonomy. (laughs) I still can't eat Nutella today. I'm like, I'm so done with it. (laughs) Rachel's parents split up when they were 10. And mostly Rachel lived with their dad. But they also had a room at what Rachel calls Elaine's bachelor pad. Elaine was in her mid-40s during the divorce. And afterwards, she threw herself into personal growth. She was always going off to these Buddhist meditation retreats, shaman camp. Um, Was it really called shaman camp? Yeah, she's like, off to shaman camp. I was like, what do you do at shaman camp? Like, I don't think there was a lot of water skiing going on or archery. Um, Yeah, so I joke our dynamic, you know, technically it was mother and daughter, but it always felt more like mother and son just because of my gender. Um, But then I also joke that it often felt like father and daughter with like her being the, the unruly teenager, uh, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. so always going off to these Buddha, Buddhist meditation retreats and doesn't call, you know. Um, so I think in a way I did feel a bit responsible for her. It was kind of my role always to kind of bring her back down to earth. Mm. And in your view, as you were sort of figuring out who you were and the kind of the way you wanted your life to look, did you ever feel like your mom wanted your life to resemble hers? More? No, no, not at all. There was no pressure. If anything, like that hands-off approach, I, I would have liked them to be like, maybe you should do this. Like, give me some pointers in life. It's like, I feel like I had to figure out everything on my own. Uh, uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, she really, I always felt like both my parents were very happy with me, even though, you know, I, I think maybe they preferred I didn't quit high school. Uh-huh. <laughs> Which you did. <laughs> yeah, and become a traveling hippie. Uh-huh. Um, it, it was the late 90s. Um <laughs> In my defense. Um, But, no, they were always pretty supportive. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. How old were you when your mom was diagnosed with cancer? I was 30. And how old was your mother? 66. And um, how do you remember that conversation, finding out? Uh, we were meeting up at this rooftop patio, uh, this top of the Park Hyatt, this hotel in Toronto, where you can get this like amazing view of the whole city. And, you know, mom loved going to places like that because it just felt like an, you know, it's a very expensive martini that you get, but you feel like it's a mini vacation from uh, life down below. And yeah, we we're just catching up after work one day and then she just blurted it out. She, I think I have cancer. And, you know, my mother is a good storyteller prone to hyperbole, so I didn't react right away. I just thought, okay, maybe she's scared, but I soon could tell that it it was more serious. She was actually afraid. Elaine was eventually diagnosed with stage 1 rectal cancer, which has a roughly 90% survival rate after five years with treatment. After Elaine's doctor noticed the tumor during a colonoscopy, he wanted to schedule surgery right away. She protested because she already had a plane ticket to Peru. 
Uh, she explained that Machu Picchu was on her bucket list, so she had to do that first. Uh-huh. And so I was already like, oh, what is this? She's like stalling. Um, but And then she came back and she started reading all these books by uh, people who offered non-invasive remedies for treating cancer, all these miracle cure books, basically. Uh-huh. Um, and, and she really started to believe that she, she thought she had just as good a chance of curing cancer on her own. Did you initially sympathize with her skepticism about conventional cancer treatment and the medical establishment? Yeah, I was a hippie anti-vaxxer. I, I took these uh, homeopathic pills instead of getting my malaria shots when I went to India. Like, I hung out at the health food store and ate spirulina. Like, I had <laughs> my, you know, yeah, teenage um, health food phase. Um, but as I grew older, I, I became more balanced and, you know, realized, you know, maybe I'll just take a Tylenol instead of peppermint oil. And that actually feels a lot better. <laughs> So, but yeah, so I understood, but it seemed like she didn't grow out of it. Um, I understand, you know, chemo is poison and that, you know, big pharma, as as people call it, is, is not the most trustworthy. That being said, uh, I realized you kind of have to pick and choose what are your best odds. And I just don't think you can cure yourself of cancer with vegetable juice. So uh, I think surgery was the best option. Uh-huh. And your mother, I mean, you, you say that sounds like a joke, but is that, what did your mom, as she took on an alternate path to trying to manage her cancer, like what, what did she try? I mean, what didn't she try? <laughs> I mean, like she was taking an herbal tincture and she would even put freshly ground up flax seeds in her champagne. She took scorpion venom. She did oil pulling, coffee enemas. She would talk out loud to her cancer cells um, with respect. She kind of just cherry picked what she liked from various protocols. Um, and yeah, like I was pretty freaked out about it. I, I kind of went back between arguing my case and then try to be supportive. Um, but I, I just kept thinking that it, for a long time that it was it was just a matter of time until she'd come around and get surgery. Mm-hmm. And when you would make your case for surgery, when when that when that conflict like reared itself in its most intense way, where you really felt the standoff, like what would she say back? Well, she would usually try to shut it down pretty quickly by just saying, "I've made my decision, and I don't want to talk about it." So she, I guess she thought um, I was bringing her down with my negativity. Mm. (laughs) So she basically told me that I had to stop arguing with her or she wouldn't want to be my friend anymore. So basically she threatened to cut me out of her life, Um, which I didn't really believe, but it was still hurtful and it still made, and and it was shocking. Mm -hmm. Um. It wasn't the mom I had thought I knew. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, Did she think she was taking care of her health? Yes. You do think she was? Uh-huh. Yeah. She really wanted to live. And she really thought she was going to die if she, not necessarily on the operating table, but 
in the process, you know, of, of being pulled into the system. She just thought she would be giving up all agency and they would go to work on her. Um, she's somebody who grew up, came of age in second wave feminism and and really wanted to push against the norms and do things in countercultural ways. I think when it came down to it, trusting the doctors, giving up control was just too difficult. You know, she wanted to be in control of her own treatment, even if it was just a fantasy. Mm. That must have been so hard, Rachel. Yeah, it was pretty frustrating. Um, But, you know, when you're in something, you have this adrenaline and, you know, I would tell myself, you know what, maybe uh, her cancer just won't catch up with her for another 20 years. You know, it's not like they do tests or, or do studies on people who just let their cancer grow. So maybe maybe it'll just take a really long time to kill her. Um, all the different kind of mental gymnastics I did um, kind of just helped me stay sane at the time. Uh-huh. And what was it like, you know, with this in the background of your relationship during those those four years, like— what were your conversations like when you weren't talking about cancer? Could you, pre- <laughs> could you pretend like it wasn't happening? Yeah. I mean, for the life kind of continue on as normal in many ways. And, you know, so she would refer to it as um, having a touch of cancer. She would say, I just have a touch of cancer. Oh. Uh, <laughs> that's like and charming and also so tragic. Like. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's like, a Yeah. How much did you share with people close to you about that battle you were having with your mother? Um, my close friends knew, but it was hard because at the beginning, you know, people would say, oh, has your mom started treatment yet? And I would have to be like, no, she's taking herbs instead. And then they would be horrified, and then that would make me horrified. And so every time I talked about it, it would just stress me out. So I think, and especially as she kind of went deeper in her denial, I just found it easier to not talk about it. Mm -hmm. And my dad saw it the same way as I did. But basically, my mom was able to convince everybody else in her life that she was doing the right thing. Uh So it did make me doubt myself. And, And she's the parent. Like, she's... She, you know, maybe I should just trust her. And, you know, who's gonna, who's gonna fight with with a woman who's who's saying I have the right to choose my own course of treatment? Like only me. Like I'm like the horrible anti-feminist child <laughs> who's denying her rights. Um, and also, like my mom was known for her authenticity. She had taught a consciousness raising group. She she even underwent cognitive therapy for her chocolate addiction. Like she was the most self-aware person we all knew. So no one would believe that Elaine was in denial. Uh, it was brilliant. Uh, you know, I think we all, we all want to believe that we can, if we can just figure out the right words, when someone we love is not understanding or hearing us, or we are very concerned that they're making choices that are harmful to them, we, we really all want to believe that if we can summon the right words, we can get through that impasse. Um, and I think of your relationship with your mother as having so much 
there was so much affection and respect between you two. What did it make you learn about the limitations of your ability mm -hmm. to pull someone into seeing your point of view? Yeah, I think what I came to realize uh, is that my mom was operating from an emotional place where reason, logic was suspended in the face of fear. And that, you know, like my my therapist uh, who really helped me through a lot of this stuff, you know, she says that, um, like, I thought I was talking to the mistress of the house when really I was talking to her armored guard who was not letting any information pass the gate. So, like, her system was just so shut and absolute that I guess I, it just made me really realize, like, yeah, the, the limitations of logical thinking. Talking to the armored guard, it's like whenever she felt like you were coming at her, it just mm -hmm. it immediately led to a self-protection reaction as opposed to being able to hear anything you were saying. For sure. It just made her dig her heels in deeper. And I think, well, I just think that she just really needed to be listened to. I think that's one thing... Um, that conventional medicine could get better at is is treating you know people's emotions as well as their body because I think that's what really appealed to her about all these healers is that they really took into account her emotional world and I think that's really what she needed. Coming up, what it was like after all this for Rachel to be the primary caregiver for Elaine in her last days and what they talked about as her end got closer. My mom was speaking clearly from the perspective of someone who had experienced the loss of her, like her parents. You know, it's like she was um, like a club member giving me a welcome packet. making this episode, I kept thinking about all of the stories of really deep family disagreements that you've shared with us over the past few months when we asked about your experiences with estrangement. We're making that series now. You'll get to hear it in about a month or so. Thank you to all of you who have shared so far. But one side of estrangement that we are still missing is from the perspective of a parent who's had a child cut off their relationship with them. I've been thinking about this because not long ago, I took my two girls out on a walk in the neighborhood, and they both happened to be wearing sparkly princess costumes. A neighbor whom we hadn't met before ran out to meet us on the sidewalk. She'd seen us coming and wanted to give them a magic wand, which was really one of those dishwashing brushes with a long handle. They were so pumped about this magic wand. We thanked the woman, and she told us how the kids reminded her of her own daughter. Then she paused her eyes filled with tears, and she quickly mentioned that they weren't currently in touch, and she rushed off with a hurried goodbye. If that is an experience of estrangement that's familiar to you, tell us about it. Our email is deathsexmoney at wnyc.org. You can send us an email or record a voice memo. On our next episode, I'm talking with another creative person about losing a mother. 
Rishikesh Hirway, the musician and host of the podcast Song Exploder, lost his mom to a degenerative illness. And he talks to me about that and about watching former Supreme Court Justice Sandra Day O'Connor navigate her diagnosis of Alzheimer's. She had an agency about it um, that uh, I admired and also kind of felt sad about that my, my mom didn't get to have something like that. In some ways, I was almost jealous of the idea that she could so eloquently express this is what's happening to her. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. Ten months after Rachel Matlow's mother died, Rachel made a radio piece about grief and missing their mom that ran on the CBC in Canada. It won a big audio prize, a Third Coast Award. And that piece is actually how I first got to know Rachel's work. And I want to share a bit of it with you here because it's really special and will give you an up-close sense of their relationship. Hey, Mom. I'm here at your bench. Looks really good. It's just what you wanted. Well, you really have missed a lot in the past year. Your after party went really well. Lots of people came, and I even did stand-up comedy about you. You know you've always been a source of good material. And you'd be happy to know that Harper is out. Trudeau got in. Oh, and the second season of Transparent is really good. I wish we could have watched together. And the holidays and birthdays haven't been the same without you. Bringing up something inappropriate at the table, like furries. <laughs> <laughs> I miss that laugh. I really wish I could talk to you. Yeah. That's a common thing I keep reading that people are here. That if only I could just pick up the phone once and talk to her again. If you want, just talk to me. Just think you're talking to me. Okay. But it's not the same as you actually being alive and here right now. It's not the same, but... No, it's not the same. <laughs> no, it's not the same. I sometimes just think you're on a really long, silent meditation retreat. I don't know where you are. But I wish you were here. I know. I wish I were here, too. <laughs> I just don't know how to get through this without you. I mean, I, I knew I would be sad. But I never knew I'd be this sad. What would you tell me if you were here? I would tell you that everybody has a lot of sadness in their life. Everybody does, no matter what they look like on the outside. And sometimes you go for a, quite a long time with everything great. But everybody does suffer, and so it's not weird or wrong or not socially acceptable to be sad. I know it's not weird, but I'm not always sure I know what to do. Well, one thing is just to sit with it. That's the Buddhist way. You just feel the loss and the pain, and it'll move. It'll move a lot faster than if you try to, like, just check it away or suppress it or, you know... It's just better to say, I'm missing my mother right now. I'm missing my mother right now. If you're sad, be sad. Because it's life. You can't, you know what I mean? It's unfortunately, people die. We all die. So, 
And the people left behind are the ones who really suffer. Like, I mean, the person might be terrified of dying beforehand, but I don't have any worries about going to hell or heaven. <laughs> I'm glad you have a sense of humor about it. <laughs> but as the person left behind, what else can I do when I miss you? Uh, you could, I have a lot of diaries that are usually like, oh, I'm so unhappy. I don't, don't, don't. But I'm not going to throw them out. If you want to read them, <laughs> if you want to know about my sex life, you can. <laughs> Mom. Um, but it is a way you might want to, or some of them, or start them, or read pieces. I, I think it would be, you know what I mean? It would really bring me back, because they're all handwritten, and they're um, pretty raw. I wish they could really bring you back. But I'll still give them a read, at my own risk. I just can't get over the fact that you won't be here to see some really big things in my life. Like if I get married or have a kid. Oh, cripes. There's nothing you can do except I want to tell you this and I want you to remember it, that I couldn't be any prouder of you than I am today, but I wish I could see that. I do. Mm -hmm. I mean, I wish I could see everything that goes on in your life from now on. I just had a thought. Yeah? If you do have a daughter, could you give her Elaine even as a middle name? Sure. Okay. I would like that. Well, only if I have a daughter. <laughs> I know. But if you did. Or a dog. I mean, how many dogs are named Elaine? It would be very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that wouldn't be weird at all. When did you get out your audio recorder? Um, maybe three months before she died is when I started talking to her. Was there conflict during those recording sessions that you remember? Nope. I, I, I really just listened, you know. I, I would count the little homeopathic balls and, and put them into the water for her. You know, I, God forbid I give her an overdose. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> How would you fill your days when you were, when you had shifted into 24-hour caregiving? Um, what would you do in a day together? We watched a lot of thrilling television. <laughs> um, it felt like a seven-week-long pajama party. Mm. Uh, I put all my chess games on hold. I took a leave of absence from my job. And, yeah, I, I took care of her, but, like, I also needed to be with her. Like, I, I needed her <laughs> in that time. Um, what time of year were those seven weeks? What season was it? I think it started around tulip season, whatever that is, May, June. Because hmm. I remember we were getting lots of tulips for her. Um, yeah, and then she died on July 6th. How soon after her death did you, were you listening to those audio recordings? Oh, pretty much right away. I found it was the only thing that made me feel better, is to mm. still he hear her voice. We both make audio, and we both edit audio. And as I was thinking about you having these recordings and then having the opportunity to edit 
your mother, um, it struck me that like when so much of what had been so painful during her illness was that you couldn't get her to say back what you wanted her to say when you were <laughs> trying to express something. Um, did you think about that? Mm-hmm. Like, did you feel that? I don't think I was conscious of that, but totally what you're saying makes sense. You know, it's like, yeah, who's who's the real control freak here? <laughs> <laughs> it's like, mom's finally going to do what I say. Um, <laughs> but, I mean, that being said, I, I don't think I really, like, took liber Like, I didn't actually edit too much of what she said. <laughs> like, I didn't Franken-edit it, you know? Like, she actually said those things. <laughs> um, I, I think I joked that it's kind of like that Natalie and Nat King Cole duet, Unforgettable. Um, <laughs> it's about inspiration. Um, but, you know, then, of course, there was so much more to the story. I'm I'm curious, like, on the one hand, um, the the details of of the story of your your mother's illness and the the conflict about how to deal with medical care so specific and and kind of extreme. Um, but I wonder if, in talking about grieving a parent with other people, are there ways that you like come to s- sort of see like, oh, this is also just part of losing a parent? It's hard to say because I do feel different from other people. Like, I've had a couple conversations with people whose whose mother also refused conventional treatment, and I relate to them more because there's something very specific about just those extra feelings of, of feeling like I couldn't have saved her. And... Also, just the the riddle of why somebody would do this, I find that's helped me more mm-hmm. to know that my mom's not the only one who's made such a far-out choice. Mm-hmm. And even just, like, the frustration of dealing with people in the pandemic who are refusing to get vaccinations— and just having these those kinds of conversations. Um, yeah. They really remind me of my mom. Rachel, have you um have you felt pulled to become a parent? Oh. <laughs> I mean no, no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean it's hard enough just getting myself up every day and like you know, two matching socks, breakfast, lunch, every day. Like, I'm still working on uh, myself. Uh, yeah, I don't know, maybe. Did you think about, like, did, did going through your mother's illness and death, like, did you think about becoming a parent in one way or another that was new after going through that? Did it feel less appealing, more appealing? I don't know, I... You know, so many people want to be a parent to do things differently. But I think in that, often you people give their kid what they needed and not necessarily what the kid needs. Like, it just makes me think how the pendulum can really swing from one side to the other. Um, you know, my mother is who needed the hands-off approach to parenting, not necessarily me. And I probably could have used a bit 
more hands-on <laughs> um, mothering, but our relationship was wasn't perfect, but it was great, hmm. and and I'll take that. That's Rachel Matlow. Their memoir is called Dead Mom Walking, a memoir of miracle cures and other disasters. It was just published in the U.S. after coming out in Canada in 2020. Do check it out. I thought it was fantastic. And that audio piece from Rachel that we excerpted first ran on the Sunday edition on the CBC. It's called Dead Mom Talking. There's a link to it in our show notes if you want to listen to it in its entirety. Death, Sex, and Money is a listener-supported production of WNYC Studios in New York. This episode was produced by Lily Clark. The rest of our team is Liliana Maria Percy Ruiz, Afi Yellow Duke, Zoe Azoulay, Lindsay Foster Thomas, and Andrew Dunn. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. I'm on Instagram at Anna Sale Picks, that's P-I-C-S, and the show is at Death Sex Money on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thank you to Angelina Lucento in Tucson, Arizona, for being a sustaining member of Death, Sex, and Money and supporting us with a monthly donation. You can join Angelina and support what we do here by going to deathsexmoney.org slash donate. And Rachel told me Elaine didn't just run workshops and write in her journals. She also published a book. How can we find some of your mother's writing? Oh, my God. Write me and I'll send you a copy of her dating guide for women over 50. (laughs) I've inherited a few boxes of them. The dating guide, that would be Silver Fox. Yeah, Silver Fox, the dating guide for women over 50. But I I really think it's good for all ages. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, maybe you could have like a giveaway. Uh, If you you want, I'll give you as many as you want. Our next premium is Silver Fox. The first hundred people to write in get a copy of Silver Fox. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. (laughs) 